Oh, man. Instant silence, just how I like it. How are we doing, everybody? I, uh, I was watching the Dodger game yesterday. Sorry. And uh, I was like, either nobody's coming to church today or everybody's coming to church today. And I'm happy. I'm not happy. Well, sports don't matter, but um, you know what does matter? You know what does matter? Dune. I, I, last time I spoke, I came up here and I said, I pray every, di every day that I don't die before the movie Dune comes out. And I totally meant it, and God answered my prayers. I saw Dune on Thursday night with the crew. Who else saw Dune? Yes! The spice must flow. All right, well, this is, this is my personal copy of Dune. I, I, I left the house with me today. I've had this for longer than I can remember. I read this book. The first time I read it, I was in high school, and it completely changed my life. It, it blew my mind. It blew my categories for what a book could be. And I read it in a class called Thanatology. Now, Thanatology is a weird class for a high school senior to take because Thanatology is the study of death in literature. That's why we're all black in college, because I just took Thanatology and I really ran with it. Uh, and you, you got a list of books in the beginning of the semester, and Dune was on the list, and I, I, I read it, and it blew my mind. And we looked at death as a literary device. So death like plot, or death like character, or death like climax. Death was something that Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, used to get the story moving. And if you saw the movie, if you read the book, in the first act, there's something fairly tragic that happens, and it pushes our main character, um, played by the little boy my wife loves, uh, Timothy something. He, he goes out in the desert, and, and it's kind of this big event. It happens because of death. And, and there are plenty of stories that we love as a society that actually are like centered around death, pushing people out of their comfort zone. Who's seen the movie Up? A lot of us have seen the movie Up. Uh, the movie is about a guy's wife dying and then him going on an adventure. Pretty morbid. But death is what pushes him out of his comfort zone to go on the adventure. Without the death of his wife, he would not have done that adventure. Or what about the movie Forrest Gump? Anybody see the movie Forrest Gump? Some of us? It's, a, it's an indie movie, I know, but maybe, maybe you guys can check it out when it's on TNT every single day. Um, but in Forrest Gump, his friend Bubba dies in Vietnam, and then he's like, I wanted to be a shrimp fisherman, and now we have the restaurant in every mall in the world. So it's like, we wouldn't have Bubba Gump shrimp company without death. And, and, and death is, is oftentimes a really interesting literary device. And now the book of Acts is not a novel. It's, it, it's not fiction. It's history, but it is a story. And Luke is a master storyteller. And Luke has kind of been teasing this thing that is going to happen in the book of Acts. And that's the church is going to be persecuted, and they're ultimately going to leave Jerusalem. And that happens through a death. And, and we're going to read about that today. We're going to read about a guy named Stephen, who Sean introduced last week as one of um, the guys who was uh, there to help the Hellenistic widows get their food. He, he, he's described as this man with wisdom and grace and knowledge. He, he's kind of this, this all-star. But he dies. He, he, he gets murdered by the government. It's a story that we've seen play out several times in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts, but this is kind of a culminating moment where death pushes the church out of their comfort zone. 
And normally, if you were to read a book or a story and death were to happen, man, that's a sad moment. And it is sad in the book of Acts, but in God's sovereignty, he does something incredible. He gets the church to move to the place and the spaces that he wants the church to move. And it happens through this moment. And so we are going to read this story of Stephen's stoning, Stephen's martyrdom. He's, he's kind of seen as the first Christian martyr in the New Testament. And it is an incredible story. It is very dense. It is 67 verses, and we're going to stand for all. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You guys are going to go walk the neighborhood after this. I can't tire your legs out too much. But we are—it's 67 verses, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of jump around a little bit and pass over. But, but here, here's my deep, deep conviction. Um, I, I, I really want you to go back and read Stephen's sermon in, in Acts 7. I, I really do. I, I really believe that it is one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture. It, it is so rich with Old Testament history and theology, and, and it, it would just be a miss if you heard me tell the story very briefly. I, I really think it's worth you going back with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and a highlighter and a pen and just reading this passage because it is so, so very rich. So I'm not going to have you stand. I am going to have you get your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Well, actually, we'll start in verse 6. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 today. I'm going to pray and fix my microphone, and then we are going to get going. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for, um, God, thank you just for the way that you are building Coastline up, God, and you are bringing us all together. And every week is just so fun to come and do ministry here. And so, Lord, today I just pray that we would be gathered around your word, that we'd be connected by what you're doing, God. And this is an intense passage. This is a heavy passage. This is a passage where we watch someone who's innocent die, and there's cries of justice in our own hearts, and we wonder how something like this can happen. And God, we often don't have all the answers. Lord, we often um, see things like this happen in our own world, in our own family, in our own community, God, and wonder where you are. But Acts is a story about you moving behind the scenes in ways that we could never quite grasp. And Lord, the more we try to grasp them, the more difficult it becomes to follow you, Lord. And I I just pray we could have the posture of Stephen, where we would just look up to heaven and say, God, whatever you're doing, we want to be a part of it. Lord, may we be a church that gets to be a part of what you're doing in the world, just like the church in Acts. So God, be with us today. Be with me. Be with all of us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so like I said, we are going to be in the book of Acts chapter 6. 6, 8 is where we're going to start um, in Like I said, this is a long, long one, so so bear with me as we kind of jump around, but we're going to read 6, 8 through 14 right here. Check it out. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teacher of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, the accusation here that Stephen's getting accused of is that he is blaspheming against Moses 
and the temple, or basically the law and the temple. And you cannot talk about Old Testament Jewish faith without talking about these two things, the law and the temple. They, they were the most important things, obviously. The law is how we know how to interact with God and interact with others. And the temple was not only the religious center, but the economic center of the Jewish faith. So this, this is a giant accusation to be thrown at Stephen, to say that he is blaspheming against these two incredibly important things. And the irony is that he's probably just reciting Jesus's words. Now, now I have some, some scripture on the screen because Jesus set this, he, he did this first. He did this first. In John chapter 2, Jesus says this, uh, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now that's Jesus talking about his body, but if you don't know what he is talking about, you would think, oh man, that is very, very, very blasphemous. Or you have Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Again, that would be seen as very, very, very blasphemous if you were an Old Testament Jew and you didn't know what Jesus was talking about. You'd say, of course this guy's blaspheming against the, against the law. Of course this guy's blaspheming against the temple. So it, so it stands to reason that Stephen's just out here telling the story of Jesus, telling everything that he's done, saying this is what he says, this is what he does, this is what he's doing, and this is what he's going to do. And, and obviously that makes the Sanhedrin very, very, very uncomfortable. And then he gets put on trial. And so that's kind of the scene that we have. I want to direct your attention to chapter 15 before we launch into Stephen's sermon. Check this out. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I love this passage. I, th I think that in evangelical Christianity, we have kind of a difficult relationship with angels. Uh, we either think they're like very tastefully nude babies with harps or uh, cloud diaper babies or like androgynous people like Timothy Chalamet. Like there are all these relationships that we have with angels and we just think that that's what they are. Like they're these beautiful creatures and that's what they do. But angel in scripture is actually a job description. It's the Greek word angelos and it means messenger. So every time angels come up in the Bible, they are doing one thing. They are messaging. They are giving a message from heaven to earth. And so I think Luke adds this to say, what Stephen is about to say is a message from heaven to earth. Now that sounds important. That sounds very, very, very crucial for the entire operation of God trying to bridge heaven and earth through the church in the book of Acts. And so that is exactly what we are going to see. These are heavenly words. These are powerful words. These are spirit-filled words that Stephen now throws at the Sanhedrin. So we're going to move on to verse seven, or chapter 7 now. And like I said, this is, this is very, very, very dense. It's chunky, and we are not going to do all the passages. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Go back and read it. But I, I just wanted to briefly tell you what's happening here. Stephen launches into like a 40,000-foot history of the Old Testament. He, he takes all of the Old Testament history, and he kind of compacts it into three acts— pun in, not intended, but he puts it into three kind of movements, and he looks at Old Testament history through three people, through, uh, through Joseph, through Moses, and through Abraham. Not in that order. He, he looks at it through Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. He says, if you want to understand Old Testament history, look at these three guys. It'd be like if I came up here and said, I'm going to do a TED Talk on American history. And instead of me giving you dates and facts and figures and when battles happen and when this happened and legislation, I, I said, I'm just going to tell you the legacy of George Washington, of Abraham Lincoln, and uh, of FDR. If I tell you everything about those three guys, you're going to get a really good sense 
of what America is all about. And Stephen basically does the same thing. He says, I'm going to give you a really good sense of what Israel faith is like, of what Old Testament Jewish faith is like, by highlighting these three guys. Again, it's Abraham, it's Joseph, and it's Moses. And he talks about Isaac, and he talks about Jacob, and David, and Solomon, and they, they all get mentioned. But he kind of paints this broad history, focusing on these three guys. And it's very, very important that we see that the, they're kind of the connecting point. They're kind of the through line. These three guys, that's how Stephen's like, that's, this is how you can understand Old Testament history, looking at these three characters. And so what is the commonality between these three guys? Well, what do they all have in common? Well, besides just being in the Old Testament, they have something very, very, very important in common. It's that God gives them locational instruction. He, he tells them about places to meet him. He gives Abraham this call to leave the country of his father and go somewhere else. He gives Moses the call to go out of Egypt into the desert. And he actually is with uh, Joseph as his brothers sell him into slavery, if you remember that story. So it's all of these characters who interact with God in places. Now, now the idea of place is very, very important for Stephen. That's going to kind of be the driving force through everything. And, and I know I'm talking a lot. Well, let's jump back into scripture, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Let's look at uh, chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. He is quoting this passage and this idea of land and place keep coming up. Verse 4, so he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even ground to set his foot on, but he promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. So basically what Stephen is saying is he's like, check out this pattern that you see in Abraham. Abraham had nothing to go off of. God said, you're going to go to this land. You're going to have people on your team. You're going to have a family with you, and, and you got to just go. And he had nothing. He had no children. He had no land. He had nothing that he could like say, oh, this is the promise. He just had to believe in God to get him to where he was going to go. God gave him a destination. And it's very important that we see that God didn't just meet him in the destination. God wasn't like, I'm going to send you to this land and I'll, I'll see you when you get there and, and figure out your own way to get a family and figure out your own way to have all these descendants and figure out your own way to get into the land. That is not what God says. God basically says, I'm going to go on the journey with you. I'm not just the God of the destination. I'm also going to be the God on the journey with you. That's what we're supposed to be seeing when Stephen quotes Genesis 12, or when he quotes Abraham's call. That's the pattern that starts to emerge. We see that God is not just the God of the destination, but he is also the God of the journey. God, in other words, is movable. He goes with his people. He goes with them. And we see that as Stephen then talks about Joseph. Now, we know the story of Joseph. He was born, and his brothers were very jealous of him, so they sold him into slavery. And then he went to Egypt. And guess what? God went with him. 
God didn't just stay in his family unit. When he was sold into slavery, his family stayed behind, and he went into Egypt, and God was with him the whole time. God was with him in Egypt. And once he got to Egypt, he, he gained a lot of power. He was able to distribute food, and when his family came back, they were all back together, and God was with them. So again, it's not just the God of one location or one group. He goes with them, and when they're gathered, he is there with them. And then Stephen spends most of his time talking about Moses, because I think in the Moses narrative, God is the most movable. I mean, think about the story of Moses. He's born, and then he, he gets picked up by an Egyptian, so it's from here to here. And then in Egypt, he's there, and then he flees to Midian after he kills somebody. And then he goes back to Egypt, and then he goes and takes the Israelites into the desert. Talk about moving. There, there is tons of movement, tons of going here and there and back and forth at A and B. And God is with Moses and the people every step of the way. In the desert, God meets them in a tent. He is with them on the journey. He is a God of the wilderness God of the tent. He, he is moving with the people, and he is not just in the destination. And then post-Moses, Stephen talks about how David and Solomon built this temple that God is dwelling in. And he's like, that's the destination, but it's not like God was only there. God's presence, God's spirit moved with you, moved with the people consistently. God was always on the move. And, and he kind of sums everything up here. Uh, we'll jump in at 749. I just— did all of that, 749, uh, where, where Stephen quotes Isaiah 66. It says this. This is the Lord speaking. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? This is what Stephen's trying to say. Look, the story of Abraham, the story of Moses, the story of Joseph, it is God moving with his people as they follow him. How can we possibly believe that God is just going to be relegated to one place, to one temple, to one idea? You're, you're, you're accusing me of blasphemy against the temple. There is really no temple anymore, right? Because now the Spirit of God lives in all of us. The Spirit of God is in each and every one of us who profess faith in Christ. So now Stephen kind of turns the tables. He has this huge defense so rich with Old Testament scripture, and then he turns the tables. He now is accusing the Sanhedrin of being blasphemous. Look at this, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. What's really funny here is Stephen is using Old Testament insults on these guys. Like Old Testament insults you would see in the narrative of Moses or, or in Joseph or, or in Abraham. This idea of being stiff-necked, that is literally how God describes Israel in the wilderness. And this idea of being uncircumcised means they're not covenant people. That, that's what Abraham is called in Genesis. And so he turns the tables and he said, you're just like your ancestors. Because historically, your ancestors, or, or those in opposition to God, always, always freak out when God is on the move. They always freak out when God is on the move. There's a, there's a section in, in this passage, I don't have it up on the screen, but it's Acts 7.39, where Stephen says, Our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, Moses, in their hearts, and they turned back to Egypt. I think Egypt here represents something super, super important. It's this idea that you can contain God. 
as the Israelites were wandering through the deserts, they said, man, I just want to go back into Egypt. And I think that Egypt had a lot of very negative things for them, but it did have one thing that was going for them, and that was control. They knew their life there. They, they believed that that's where God was. They believed that Yahweh was with them there. And so when their hearts are turning towards Egypt, Stephen says that's them resisting the Holy Spirit because the Spirit's on the move. Why are you looking back? God is moving us forward, and he is with us every single step of the way. And that's Stephen's whole defense. God's presence, his spirit, is not contained in a locality. It wanders in the wilderness with his people. It goes before, it goes beyond, it is constantly surprising, it is constantly confounding. God was content in a tent, and he was content in a temple. He was content in the wilderness, and he was content on Sinai, and he was content with his people as they were wandering. He's been in the highest places of government. He's been in gardens. He has been everywhere. And Stephen is saying, you guys just keep missing it. Is there ever been a prophet that you people didn't persecute? And your brain immediately goes to someone maybe like Joseph, who, who was sold into slavery. Talk about persecution. He was sold into slavery. Or maybe Isaiah, who traditionally was said to be cut in half. Or Jeremiah the prophet, who was said to be stoned to death. Or Ezekiel, Micah, or Amos, who have all said to have been tortured to death in apocryphal books. These prophets come and they pronounce the kingdom of God's on the move. God is doing something new. God is doing something incredible. And people are like, don't want to hear it. Our hearts are back in Egypt. We're going to kill you. And Stephen is saying, it's just happening all over again. And, and, and I mean, 50 pages previous to this is Jesus' death, which is exactly what happened. Jesus comes and says, the Holy Spirit now lives in you. I'm going to abolish the temple. If you, if you profess faith in me, then you will have eternal life. It doesn't come in these laws and in these ceremonies and these sacrifices anymore. It comes in the once and for all sacrifice that I am going to give on the cross. Again, they crucified him. And Stephen stands in front of the Sanhedrin and says, you guys are playing the role you were born to play. I am here with the church pronouncing the good news that God is on the move and God is doing something new in history. And you guys are just going to kill me like you've killed so many others. The ultimate condemnation here is that the Sanhedrin's hearts are still in Egypt. They believe that they've cornered the market on God. They believe that they have God in their own little box. And Stephen comes and says, what if you're wrong? What if God is actually doing something beyond you could ever imagine, be beyond anything you could ever conceive in your brain? And they're like, he he's not. And you don't want to know why? Because we're going to kill you. It's like, well, that's not how that works. But that's how the Sanhedrin works. They have this paradigm. And if God doesn't fit, they need to reconcile it. And they'll reconcile it in one or two ways. They'll let it in and, and they'll vet it relentlessly until it matches them, or they'll just say, it's not real, and, and they'll kick it out. And that's what they're go going to do with Stephen. Check out verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Luke bookends Stephen's sermon with his disposition with his physical posture. He is not looking at the Sanhedrin in fear. He's looking up to the heavens and saying, whatever's happening up there, that's what I'm going to be a part of. It reminds us of Jesus's baptism, right? Where, where heaven opens and it's this moment of fulfillment, this moment of culmination. And we see the same thing happening here. The same thing happening here. It's a moment of fulfillment. This is where the story has to go. Verse 57, 
At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, we are just retelling the story of Jesus here through Stephen. An innocent man standing in front of a council that thinks that they understand God better than God, and they don't know how to act, so they wield their power, they wield violence, they put him to death, and the innocent one stands and says, don't hold it against him. Don't hold them accountable. Don't, don't persecute them too. And, and, and it's just this incredible story we have of God showing the world what it's like when we try to put him in a box. We can't. We can't even begin to understand God. And, and, it, and I think the whole key of this passage rests in this idea that there's this guy named Saul there. Because we all know Saul. He turns in just a few chapters from now, he turns into a guy named Paul who writes a good chunk of our New Testament. And, and not only is he just this writer who's really good at writing about, you know, Jesus-y things in books like Galatians and 1 Corinthians, but he is God's main tool to bringing the gospel to the Gentiles which is the whole point of the book of Acts, right? If, if you go back to Acts 1-8, you see Jesus's words where he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you flip ahead just one page, Acts 8-1, on that great day, a persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. We have just witnessed the event by which God's kingdom, God's presence, will move beyond the people to places that we couldn't ever possibly imagine to the Gentiles, and it all happens through this guy named Saul. Talk about category blowing. Talk about category busting. This is like Dune 2.0. This is crazy. This kind of stuff only happens when God is in full control. And so with a passage like this, there's a lot of things that we can take away. There, there's a lot of things that we can say, oh, it's about this, it's about this, it's about this. But I ultimately want to draw your attention to something very simple here. It's the idea that the Sanhedrin really believed that they had cornered the market on God. They really believed that they understood God better than anybody else. They, they had this paradigm, and they had this way of viewing Scripture, this way of viewing God, this way of viewing faith. And, and Stephen comes up and says, God is doing something new. God is on the move. And they said, no, he's not. No, he's not. And Moses did the same thing in the wilderness, and the Israelites said, no, he's not. The prophets do the same thing in the books of the prophets, and, and the world says, no, he's not. Jesus does the same thing. He says, God is doing something new. If you want proof, just look at me. And, and the world says, no, he's not, because they think that they have cornered the market on God. It didn't fit into their paradigm. It didn't fit into their worldview, and they wanted to do everything they could to make sure that their paradigm and their worldview remained intact. And so they destroyed the thing that challenged them. And I think that we do the same thing today. I think we have our isms and our ians and our dates and our camps and the things that we think are the most important thing. And when we encounter people who are different than us, who, who think differently and believe things about Scripture that maybe we don't believe, we immediately write them off and say, they're not embracing the Spirit. They're actually resisting the Spirit. Because I know, because I'm me and I, I know it. What, what, what we're saying when we do that is that all of salvation history has culminated in my group of friends. 
who like believe the same things that I do. Like, like think about that. We, we, I, mean, I, if, if I, I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I saw this in seminary, right? Like, you find your people, you find your tribe, you find your theological echo chamber, you find your little Sanhedrin group, and every book or blog or podcast or person that, that feels like it's coming up against you, you do everything you can to write them off instead of saying, wait, what if God is doing something new? And if you check it and it is wacky, then it's wacky. That's fine, but that's not what I think this passage is saying. This passage is giving you a way to understand what's happening here, and it's, are you embracing the Spirit like Stephen, or are you resisting the Spirit like the Sanhedrin? Are you believing that you know God better than God knows God, and resisting the Spirit and saying, you're not speaking to me, you're not doing anything, you're not, you're not acting in any way, Lord? Or are you embracing the Spirit, looking up to heaven and saying, God, you're doing something new. I don't know what it is, but I want to be along for the ride. Are you idolizing your categories? Are you holding to your camps just a little too firmly? Or are you embracing the Holy Spirit and saying, God is on the move? In Romans 11, Paul says, who can know the mind of God? Why do we believe that we can? Why do we believe that we can? And this is something that I think we see so often in churches. Oh, they're this, so I don't, I don't hang out with them. Or they believe this, so I'm not going to talk to them. Or they believe this person can do this thing, or this person can't do this thing. Or if you look like this, you can't talk like that. Or, and it's just, we let these camps divide us. God says we got to love our neighbors. We don't have to isolate them. Is, is your paradigm isolating people? Is your paradigm isolating yourself from other people? Or are you engaging? Are you going into conversation? And if you're afraid, that's good. Because that means you're getting pushed out of your comfort zone. You don't think Stephen was afraid in this moment? Stephen was afraid in this moment. But, but the Holy Spirit, he looks up to heaven and says, okay, whatever God's got going on is so much better than what I can have going on for myself. And I'm going to embrace that. And the Sanhedrin didn't wake up that morning and say, we're going to kill somebody today. They existed in a, in a world that enabled them to do this. They had their echo chamber. And there's only one way to avoid going down that path. There's only one way to, to not get into our little camps or, or a little this or a little that and idolize them over actual idolizing God and, and, and loving other people. There's only one way, and it's embracing the Holy Spirit. The only way we can do it is embracing the Holy Spirit. Because we, we see in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit blows categories wide open. He, he takes God to the Gentiles, to the non-ethnic people, the non-ethnic Jews, and he, he lets them into the kingdom. Talk about category blowing. And if you resisted the Holy Spirit, you were not part of that movement. So the only way that we can actually, actually live out what I think this passage is telling us to live out is by embracing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that will take you farther out of your comfort zone, deeper in relationship than those different than you, and the Holy Spirit that will completely change your perspective. And if you don't believe me, just read the book of Acts, because that's what continues to happen. The Holy Spirit comes in, converts people you wouldn't think could be converted elevates people who you didn't think could ever be elevated, gives people a seat at the table that you never would have imagined if you had held on to your own categories and not embraced the Holy Spirit. And look, I know it's really hard, especially in 2021. I think we live in a world that feels so increasingly hostile towards Christians. And, and I'm not saying it's super easy to go out there and just be a Christian, but, but I, I want us to, to act more like Stephen than I think a lot of us are acting, because Stephen could have looked at the Sanhedrin. He could have looked down at the Sanhedrin and said, yeah, 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 yeah it's actually too much, of, too much to fight. I'm going to give in. I'm, I'm done. I'm done embracing. I'm going to resist. I'm going to be on your team. And it's really easy for us to do that, but, but, but we, we lose everything when we do that. 
We lose everything when we do that. Stephen lost his life, and that wasn't even everything to him. That wasn't even everything to him. And so the call that we have as the church in 2021 is to embrace the Holy Spirit. And in God's sovereignty, as we embrace the Holy Spirit, things tend to get a little bit more difficult. Again, if you look through Scripture, the people who dive deep into relationship with God end up suffering, or they have a lot of pain, persecution, exile, even death. But God uses those things to show us that he is not just the God that you can understand. He is going to use these terrible things, like it says in Genesis 50, for his good. And the only way we can get there is if we're going to embrace the Holy Spirit. So, so, so family, the invitation is, is simple today. Are, are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Or are you embracing the Holy Spirit? Do you look at the Sanhedrin and say, yeah, I want to join your team because it's really hard to embrace the Holy Spirit and do hard things? Or are you going to be looking up to heaven, ready to go on the move with God as he does incredible things? The rest of the book of Acts blows categories wide open. And it's easy to read it and say, oh, that's cool that that happened. But if we continue to embrace the Holy Spirit, this can still happen. God can still go on the move. And, and there's no better place for that to happen than in this church. So I'm going to pray, invite the worship team up, and I'm also going to invite the prayer team to go over to the sides. And, and this sermon is, is, you know, is one thing. But if we don't actually live this out and embrace the Spirit, if we don't actually live this out and, and seek prayer and, and, and seek wisdom from those around us, then man, I, what are we doing? So, so we have our prayer partners who are going to go up on the side, and, and this is a really good opportunity for you to go before the Lord in worship and ask, in what ways am I resisting the Spirit? In what ways am I just saying, it's, it's too hard, it, it's too difficult, I, I, I don't want to do that, and, and allow God to reveal those to you, and then go to a prayer partner. Confess. It's such a beautiful thing that we can do as Christians. We can go to a brother or a sister and say, here's what I'm dealing with. Here, here are the ways that I'm being resistant, and, and they can just speak forgiveness you know, they're not the ones forgiving you. They're just echoing Christ's words that you are forgiven. And in that moment, things start to get lifted, and it becomes easier to embrace. So, so that, that's my plea, and I think that's Scripture's plea as well. But, but, but let's pray. God, it, this is a lot. Um, and it's easy to get lost in the, the, the story of Stephen or the story that Stephen's telling as he's in front of the Sanhedrin. And God, I just pray tonight that you, you would have done a work in everybody's heart, that you, that you would have let us hear you tonight, God, that in the ways that we're not embracing the Holy Spirit, in the ways that we are holding to our own categories, holding to our own camps, holding to our own things, where we feel like we've cornered the market on you, God. I get that that's comfortable. I get, get that that's easy, God. But, but the more that we do that, Lord, the less that we are going to actually be a part of what you're doing in the world. And so, Lord, as we sing these next three songs, I pray that this moment would be a catalyst, God. This moment would push us out of our comfort zone, that we would now see the world as people that we could talk to and interact with, that they're not going to, you know, detract from the mission, God. In fact, that is the mission, to go and speak to people, talk to people, love people, and show them who you are and, and what you do. You blow categories right out of the water, God. You, you make a way where there's often no way. Lord, and that's just what you do. And so tonight, I pray that we would embrace that. We would embrace your version of what you do, God, not our own version. 
I pray, God, we wouldn't hold too tightly to our own things, God, but we would just release them and embrace what you have for us. So God, be, um, be with Coastline. And it happens tonight. It happens tonight as we go out into the, the neighborhood and invite people to the, uh, to the trunk or treat. Lord, I, I just pray that that would be a moment where we can start to live this out. But God, no matter what, you're, you're doing incredible things in this church, Lord, and we are thankful. I pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.